This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Hey everyone, quick announcement. If you're in the Boston area or if you have access to a private airplane and unlimited free time, I'll be speaking on October 12th at Sound Education, an educational audio conference at Harvard. My talk's on Saturday, but there are amazing speakers the whole time, starting Wednesday the 9th, leaders in thought-provoking audio from shows that there's a good chance you're already listening to. Sound Education from October 9th to 12th. Learn more at soundeducation.fm. Hi there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. Like too many of us, I hated history classes throughout my high school career and only realized as an adult that there are a few things more interesting to ponder than the ways people lived and thought in different times and places than my own. After all, we're all stuck in our own time, limited by our culture, consciousness, and whatever knowledge we possess of what came before. Maybe that explains part of the appeal of historical fiction like the series Downton Abbey, set in a great Edwardian country house in the early 20th century. My guest today is stage and screen director Michael Engler. He's the director of the new Downton Abbey feature film and directed episodes of Downton Abbey, Deadwood, Six Feet Under, 30 Rock, and much more for television. Meticulously recreating one corner of Edwardian England and building original story worlds within it, Downton Abbey is part romantic comedy, part historical drama, grappling with the tensions of class and society at the sunset of empire. Welcome to Think Again, Michael. Thanks. That was very well written. Oh, <laughs> thank you. I love I, that. I'm available for HBO <laughs> yeah, television yeah. shows if you need me. Good. No, just kidding. Although I happen to love a lot of the shows that you've worked on. I mean, Dead, Deadwood, I was an enormous, one of the aggrieved fans when it was canceled and yeah. very happy to see the movie come back. Yeah, so was I. I loved that show. Yeah. I loved working on it too. David Milch is an amazing guy. You know, I would say in some ways, there have been a couple of people in my life who... I would actually apply the word genius to. And I don't just mean great talent or brilliant. I mean kind of encyclopedic knowledge and information and ability to quote just huge sections of, of, of Shakespeare and Chaucer. And I mean, unbelievable what, just what, what he drew from. And so the fact that he ended up in the worlds he ended up in, I always found kind of, kind of fascinating. And, and he was just a very warm strange, interesting guy. That yeah, was a special... it, always, it always seems like a fluke that way. Like um, like also uh, David Simon. Yes. You know, he also seems like, like, what the hell is he doing in that world? But, you know, creating a, a totally idiosyncratic and obviously like deeply informed by his own, yeah, I guess genius is really the yeah. only word kind of world. Yeah, and I think, I think something that's interesting about those guys, and Julian is that way. Julian, and we should say for the audience, Sorry. that's Julian Fellows, the creator of Downton Abbey, and also of The Chaperone, which you directed. Correct. Yeah. And The Gilded Age, which we're starting up for HBO, that's about The Gilded Age in New York. Okay. But anyway, I, and I think he too, part of it is that when you find yourself immersed in a period of history, I think what becomes interesting about it is sort of the tension of what's the same and what's different mm. in our own. And you think like, oh my God, that was always like that about people or about families or about 
a work situation or whatever. And then certain things you think like, oh, that started then or that hadn't happened then or, oh, my God, that's completely different now. And I think I think it's that that's thing right. that, that makes you sort of a little more awake in your own time because you realize so many of the things you take for granted are are mutable. You know, they may not be that way. 20 years from now when they weren't that they might not have been that way 10 years ago i think that way about shakespeare we're thrilled by the universals we're thrilled by seeing ourselves you know seeing love seeing so many aspects of ourselves in those characters but then also yeah by the changeability of the world and there's something liberating about that because then we think about our own world and we say many of these structures that i'm trapped within you know, it's sort of an accident of history that they ended up being like this, or they may change. In an accident of history or part of the cycles of human history, you know, when, when you think, of, especially of the classics, you know, it's like every classic isn't worth doing every year. Right. It, there, there are times when they come back and you think, oh, that play right now is worth looking at again. I think for this one in particular, one of the reasons in the last few years, I think it has been so embraced because it's, I mean, it's it's in some ways, you know, uh, an unparalleled acting company and Julian Fellow's writing is unique and right. absolutely complex in a way that a lot of this genre isn't. But I also think that there's something universal in the world right now that people are longing for in some way a world that feels like it has a coherence in which people of different classes, different socioeconomic mm. backgrounds and positions, they feel an investment in each other and that you may like each other or dislike each other, get along or not get along, but that you somehow belong to each other. I see. And I feel like that is... Like community, basically. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Community. And whether it's, whether it's that big house, that estate, or whether it's the place you go to work or, or any of that. And I, and I think... People um, feel so disconnected from each other now and feel like, well, these people who aren't like me, I'm not interested in them and they're not interested in me. And hopefully we can get along. And if we can't, that's fine, too. It's an interesting and sort of a guilty pleasure for an American, speaking for myself and living in this time, to watch and immerse myself in that world and to feel, to sort of fall in love with it in a sense, because those same structures that give coherence to society and that create community and create all of those things that you're talking about involve inequalities right. and oppressions and you exactly. know, things that we can no longer support. Exactly. You know, and, and don't now be pleased with some of that. It does. I mean, it's... It, I wouldn't say it's a rough and gritty <laughs> right, 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 take right, right, on any right, right, of that. Right, right. It acknowledges some of those things. But you know what? The thing about it is it's not so much about... Here's the thing. I mean, Fellows is fundamentally a kind-hearted writer. He writes from the point of view of he likes his characters and he and he sort of likes the idea that there is a world in which people as difficult as some can be or everybody can be they 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 get along and they're more it's a, it's an optimistic view of the world right but i think that the sort of the fact of it being this stratified thing where he what he does get at is that wherever you are in that order there is a certain amount of it feels like oppression we call it oppression if you're at the bottom of the mm -hmm. of the scale and privilege if you're at the top but every position in a very hierarchical society is 
circumscribed by certain obligations and right. certain opportunities, certain privileges and certain. And so in some ways, the people at the bottom, all they have to do is do their job. They don't have to worry about the continuance of the estate other than they might have to look for a job if it didn't. So what's interesting is that he kind of dramatizes the idea that wherever you are in that order, you could feel trapped or you could feel like you have opportunities to express yourself. If you're the cook, you can shine as the cook. If you, if, right. Or you're just a servant trapped in a world where you have to serve others and cook for them and whatever. And same thing, if you're in the family, you owe this incredible sense of duty and, and lifestyle and everything to that position. So that within that, he's always showing that what character is, what defines character is how each person pushes against those, challenges them, rises right. above them, breaks through them, lives with dignity within them, or pushes beyond it to achieve their own dignity. And that that's, that's different for everybody, and, and there isn't kind of a judgment about who does and who doesn't being a better or worse person. There are, you know, there are people who are very dutiful at the top and at the bottom who you really admire. Right. And then there are the more rebellious ones too. And for them, that feels right. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I, I imagine that that's pretty historically accurate too, that there were people, you know, that that was the general sort of accepted structure of the world and that there were some who struggled against it and that there were others who tried to excel within it. I mean, Carson is sort of, Carson, the, I, I want to get his position right. He's, He's the butler. The butler, yeah. yeah. Carson the butler is sort of exemplary of success at the lower end of that social ladder, living within that world. And then Thomas... Who's just below Carson. Right, right. So yeah. Thomas, at least earlier in the series, he's... he's he, a bit, he, he starts as a footman, and then he becomes sort of the under-butler, and then he becomes the butler at the end of the series. Yeah, and he's a bit of a, he's a, bit of a wild card, bit of a louche, ambivalent figure, kind of like playing within, around, sometimes against that world. And so he becomes a bit of a proxy sometimes for whatever discomforts we might have as a modern audience. That's right. With that's social right. class. I, I think that's really true. And I think, yeah, because he's, he just feels like his sense of it, you know, is that he's trapped in it. And so whatever ways he can work it to his advantage without losing his position, right. he'll do. Whereas Carson actually feels sort of ennobled by by his position in it, you know, even though he's below stairs. And I think even somebody like Mosley, you know, who's at a lower level, he feels kind of like his ability to perform the tasks of a footman at the highest level is an extremely satisfying and, you know, worthy accomplishment and that, and right. one that is actually in some ways above his birth. He was born to be a laborer and he actually moved into a great house. And so that's the other th way in which I think Julian tempers things without, without sort of creating the actual possibilities of cruelty that did exist then and, and, sure. and genuine suffering of how often those people lived. It's that fact that in the exact same position, three people can look at it, one with absolute satisfaction, one with absolute frustration, and the other one can't even believe that he's there and that, he, that he's lucky enough to have been raised up into that. Yeah, there's that sort of heartbreaking storyline early in the series, taking it out of the, the uh, you know, going back to the series from the film, where Mosley is assigned to work with 
the young man new to the family. Matthew. Matthew. Matthew is a modern, he's an attorney, he's not used to having a footman, and he's very dismissive and at some point literally says, this is, you know, a ridiculous job for a man to have. And like you as the audience feel, I think maybe along with, along with Mosley and along with Julian Fellows, how Heartbreaking, that is, to say to this man whose life is built around his identity as, as a successful footman. Well, exactly. And who, <laughs> and who actually, the fact that he has risen to be the foot, the, the, the valet from being a footman to being oh, right, the, right. To, he's a valet. To, right. but, okay. but no, but that's what's so interesting. He was la- then he becomes a footman. Then he's going to be raised to the level of the valet to the gentleman of the house who's eventually going to run the estate. That's such a position of pride and honor in his world. And right. so the idea that Matthew, like us, thinks like, really, he can't put on his own cufflinks? He's like, I'm fine. I don't need you. And then what I love is there's that beautiful scene when Matthew realizes it right. and, and, and starts to reach out and say, Oh, which cufflinks do you think would be better for this? And 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 understand sort of the ennobling nature of work, even if it's the simplest work, and of right. just being of use in the world. And whether or not we balk as a modern audience at the idea that you know someone should that that should be someone's aspiration in life, we can see and we can feel in that moment the cruelty of denying a person who lives within that world the right, right to their own dignity. You know, that's a funny thing that I think it's it's why. You know, there's there's the thing everybody always talks about, the sort of wish fulfillment aspect of the pleasure of watching Downton, which I think is is true. You know, it's lovely, it's gorgeous, it's lush and all that. But I think it's why just regular people and working people love watching it is seeing themselves in those people and seeing them shown with such dignity and complexity and intelligence. So we're sort of, we're a little circumscribed. We can't talk too much in detail about the plot, you know, and things that happen in the show, in the film. And I wonder sort of what, what are our boundaries here? Like, can well, we... like for instance, the film is definitely about you know, the story of the film is that there's the king and queen ah, we can are coming this. to down. There's a royal visit. That's the first trailer even said that, mm-hmm. that, that there's going to be a royal visit. And I think, I think he chose that because he was looking for a theme and a story mm-hmm. that would unite everybody, that would draw everybody into that actual story in which they all had to sort of, you know, kick it up a notch. Whatever it is they do, wherever they are in the household – they had to rise to a higher level than they've ever been driven to before. Which is appropriate for a feature film. It sort of heightens it, you know, in the way that you would want it to be for this this uh, elaboration that a feature yeah. film Well, is. it does like, two things. One is it does that. So yeah. it gives you these big royal events that are of a bigger scale and, and naturally cinematic because of their, their scope and their scale. But also what it does is, unlike an episode where... You know, the series, you know, every every week, two or three people have a main story, as, and, you know, Julian will say, you know, Daisy's buying a hat and Mary's falling in love and they don't really have to do it with each other at all. And then the next week, Mosley and Thomas has a story and Mary's still gotcha. falling in love. And th- some things, some stories will be one episode, some will run through a few, some will run through a whole season. But this needed to also be one thing that had a kind of a, a unifying beginning, middle, and end mm. that would feel like a completed arc and like its own story, you know, and through which you'd pull everybody in, but then you'd also 
bounce out and sort of see what was going on with everybody in their lives separate from this particular story. When you're directing something on on this scale, right? And by scale I mean it's, you know, it's it's larger in terms of the pageantry that's going on. It's a feature film, a longer extended story. It's larger in the sense of the kind of box office expectations and the eyes that are sure, on, sure. on the, you know, and all the kind of invested people that are interested in the outcome of the thing. How that aspect of work as a director balances with, plays against for you, the moment to moment work with, with characters and, and scenes, like, and what, you know, sort of how you kind of negotiate. Yeah. That. Well, I mean, that was a, that was definitely in the impulse of it, you know, that we all felt very strongly. That's so much a part of what the DNA of Downton is, which is a lot of intimate moments and then occasional larger, more unified storylines or events and things. So there was always a little bit of that, the idea to maintain that, the DNA of that, but but to expand it in some ways. The thing is, it's actually, it was more of a concern for me in the editing room than it was in mm. prepping it or shooting it. Other than I knew that certain things had to flow and certain things had to play off of each other with different kinds of tones and scales and and everything. And that, and there is such a broad tonal range on this show in in this sure. in this writing that's from the very like physical comedy and kind of wit dry, you know, verbal comedy and Team Maggie. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and all her sort of wildian quips <laughs> and and then there's the the kind of Work a day, struggle between people, and romantic difficulties, and opportunities, and sort of the magic of romance and love, and the sense of duty, and the beauty of what that structure of pageantry, you know, mm. can kind of bring to the world. You know, I, I was aware always from the series, even, that you always have to sort of balance those things. This one, my fear was going in that it would be so noticeably different on the big screen that right. you would have like this huge military parade, which we have in it, in a huge ballroom scene, you know, with a couple of hundred people in them. And then you would have these little scenes with two people in a room talking in beautiful, subtle, subtextual <laughs> conversation. So clash. Yeah, or that you would just think like, where are, what is this? You know, like, how does this all add up? And would that stuff suddenly you would realize, oh, that's not very cinematic. That is very mm. like television, just the sort of a lot of scenes of two or three people in a room together or something. What I sort of discovered was, in some ways, the rhythm of going down into the detail and then out into the scope is actually a very nice and refreshing one. Mm -hmm. But also that in a funny way, because of the scale of just the cinema, those rooms automatically scale up. And you feel like, oh, my God, these two people are having this intimate talk about legacy and the future and their relationship and and it's very moving and it's happening in this gorgeous room filled with things that you can now see in quite quite minute detail you can see the depth much more you and so you're kind of in a funny way i almost felt like it made the intimacy even a little bit more meaningful because mm. you got what it meant to create and have intimate moments in the midst of these sort of museum like spaces 
That's really interesting because I, I thought explicitly while watching while watching the film, particularly during the royal visit, on a couple of occasions, it occurred to me that everyone here is both on stage and in the audience. The guests at the dinner party are performing for one another. They're in a sort of a play and a pageant. The serving people are doing the same. And so, you know, and furthermore, the Downton itself is this sort of symbolic backdrop, as you said, which takes on even greater symbolic resonance at this changing moment in history. I mean, I hadn't thought of it that way, but but when you say it, it rings very true. Well, Well, because also what it means, as you said, to like have real relationships and conversations within that thing, like when you know you're being watched, when you are also observing others, you know, how do you trying to live within that is is well, there's that. I mean, that's interesting because there is that. And then there's also the when the doors are shut and it's just you and somebody else and you know each other well and there is no performance at all, then when you watch those shifts, the personalities shift or soften or open up or broaden and you realize, oh, even they know that they're on stage when they're on stage most of the time. The difference between Lady Mary and just who Mary Crawley, the granddaughter of Violet Crawley is. And and that Violet is always something in the world. She sees herself in a very historical sense. Right. And she sees her herself. Role. Yes, she her, role, her role, exactly. And she sees herself as, you know, her mission as being to maintain the visibility, the integrity of it, and in some ways the mystery of it all, you know, the elegance, yes. the, the pageantry. And yet, when the two of them are in a room together at the end, it's a grandmother and a granddaughter talking about a very serious emotional thing that means something to both of them. And then when that's let down, there's something, and that's the part of it too that I think everybody says, oh my God, that's me and my grandmother. That's that woman who I've always looked at in that way. I remember that one time we had that talk together where... She just, I could just see that she wasn't holding anything up or pretending or needing to be looked at in a certain way. Yeah, without going into any detail about what happens in, in that particular scene, I'll say that it's one of the ones where I cried. Like, <laughs> good, good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Me I too. Mean, yeah, maybe we can talk a little bit about the Dowager Countess and uh, Dame Maggie Smith in this context. Like, Because, wh- I mean, one of the things that's great about her is that she seems to have no pretense or very little. She's one of the few who, because of her position, uh, but then this is maybe also a role and a character that she's created for herself That's right. for instrumental purposes. That's right. She can say whatever she wants, whenever she wants, for the most part. Right, 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 right. Exactly. Well, who was it? Um, was one of the early great sociologists who said, you know, sincerity is believing in your own act. Ah. Even part of her wit is that she always is a little bit winking at the fact that she knows that it's a bit of a game right. to maintain it. But to that, intimidate everyone. And that's right. And, that's right. right. And, but, but that somehow the game is something we all have to play. And if we don't play it well, that's a failure, you know? Right. Right. And then, and yet there are these moments throughout 
the series and maybe if there I'm not recalling any specifically in the movie but probably there are where she finds herself having to sort of swallow a bitter pill and just <laughs> right, 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 just right. kind of play along in some way with something that she's really unhappy with I, this happens in the movie too right a little bit yeah so. yeah definitely definitely <laughs> yeah. well and often when you know <laughs> with her sometimes like when the right thing happens in the wrong way it's just as upsetting to her <laughs> right. as if the when the wrong thing happens in the right way you know she just can't it's there's so much about how things are supposed to be that you know well because that is the sort of the other story about the inheritance which I won't go into more but okay. about the estate and this this other property that that she feels should be left in in the family and in the end she sort of decides like well now that I know the reasons for it, you know, I can I can change my attitude about it. And really it doesn't change the situation at all. It's just that she sort of because it can fall within certain lines of of acceptability, she can now change her mind about it. Right, you know? right. And I think it's also sort of about ownership for her. Like she she has to take ownership of it, you know, cognitively and otherwise. That's like right. it needs to be it needs to be become in some sense her idea. Yeah. Well, and, and, and in a way, like part of what you said too about how she's so, I forget how, what you said, she's so straightforward or... Yeah, I mean, she... she as, a, as, a, as a character, she's like... Unfiltered yeah, sometimes. Exactly. And yet the thing is, part of it is that she's even unfiltered about how artificial she's being. You know, when she says, well, we have to challenge the will. And, you right. know, he says, on what basis? And she's undue influence. Well, how could you prove that? She says, well, we get a friendly judge. And he says, friendly, do you mean uh, friendly or corrupt? And she says, whichever does the trick. <laughs> she, it, that's what's so funny about her. She doesn't pretend that she's not willing to go along with corruption as long as it gets the result that she thinks is the right one. And she's such an extraordinary actress, you know, that when she is in those moments where she is frustrated or forced to play along with something that she's not, right. she does this kind of like smile frown thing, right, like right, where right, you can right. see everything that's going on within her on her face. Exactly. You it, can see, you always see the struggle in there. And, but also I think one of the things I've been thinking about it because in some ways it relates to an, another character in the Gilded Age that we're starting to think about. And, and I was thinking like, what is it about those two that reminds me of each other? And it's a way in which as a character, because of how she's been bred mm. and the life she's lived, she can't even imagine the possibility that anyone could have a different point of view about something <laughs> right. or to even consider taking it seriously, which allows her to be both haughty and tough as a character and yet funny to watch because you see somehow the the fruitlessness of it ultimately. But there's also great power, you know, and security in that as well, because, you know, that sort of certitude, I mean, that's one of the things that's most delightful for us as modern audiences. Like I think very, most of us occupy anxious and that's right, that's right. situations and that level of certainty is vicariously delightful. Right, to, right, to exactly, watch. exactly. When you're working again on this kind of scale on whatever, I'm no doubt there was a lot of time and financial pressure and whatever, mm -hmm. And with actors this skilled and, you know, such a great script and so on, to what extent, I know you come out of theater and um, I was in theater many years ago and I remember just kind of the, I don't know, the camaraderie, the sense of play, the sense of kind of ramshackle, big ramshackle organism coming together into something. To what extent is there any room for play, discovery, spontaneity, et cetera, within that? Or is everyone just kind of like doing their own job? Well, and, there's a lot of it, actually. There yeah, is a lot of yeah, it. Yeah. I mean... 
I mean, it's the, more the, the movie is fun, but I'm asking your no, experience. No, I know what you mean. The process. Yeah, 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 yeah. The process is very different, and there are t- and it is more, much more fragmented because there's nothing like a you know you get to a place in the theater where you know you 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 break things down into scenes and you rehearse them, and then you get into running acts and run throughs and dress rehearsals and tech rehearsals. All those things where everybody's just together all the time. Right. Some people have downtime, and some people are in the thick of a scene, and then they go off stage, and and then everybody's on stage together, and and so you start to become a kind of greater organism and with the crew and everybody like you're all one thing at, at, at various points and at a lot of them and then every time you're doing the the show you are you a, know a bit like that sense of community we were talking about yeah with, and camaraderie within the world that's that right Abbey is set in yeah. that's right and this you know there are moments like that you get set you get days of it here and there but and, and even those are much more fragmented because something like the big parade day you know all the close-ups and lines of the downstairs people who are standing in one side of the field, you know, you shoot for three hours in the morning. And then all the people who are on, you know, you mm. shoot. And then there's maybe one big section of a few hours where you have everybody together for big wide shots with everything. And because you've all you've done all that and everybody's come out to this place and is staying on location and you've all that, there there'll be that period. And then there's a kind of like the night after that, you know, I mean, that that uh, evening, everybody out, goes yeah. out to dinner and has a drink and has a sense of having kind of been through a big battle Fought together. The same battle, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and and everybody's sort of sharing their angle on it. That the fact that they all got to watch him do this one thing on the horse and the king do that, and the king is you know, telling the story about the struggle he had with that horse, and they had to change horses for him. And you know, everybody is is kind of sharing in a fragmented way mm. the same event. So here and there, you get that. You get it, and definitely like I always said, the thing about the series I found interesting. It was like it was like directing two different acting companies. Right. And sometimes they came together. But you were downstairs with all those people because that was one set. Every now and then somebody from upstairs would come downstairs and that was always a big event. But it was it was rare. There were a few people of the downstairs who were always upstairs or often the Carson and Mrs. Hughes and some of the footmen and stuff, the maids, the valets. And they tended more to be one-on-one, or they would, they would, in a funny way, Carson and Molesley and Andy and Thomas, they were on those big dinner table scenes. Right. And that was the upstairs company. They were like extras in those Furniture, scenes. Furniture, yeah. They were. They would stand sense. there yeah. and pour and be the time. And, you know, you would, you would just say, like, if you stand right there, I can make sure you're not in every shot so that you don't have to be here every single time in the background. But gotcha. certain things, it's like, no, right there, you you have to be pouring right then. So I'm sorry, you're going to be in every shot, you know. And they were great about it. And they... Oh, that's interesting. That's an interesting thing for them as an actor going back and forth. And too. they developed an incredible relationship to each other in that way of... You know, they're like, for instance, these big meals or these desserts or something. And, you know, these actors would sit and they would be nibbling on them all day. And, you know, the food was all very luxurious and lush and authentic. And, you know, they, then they would say, oh, you know, we're on a little break here. And then the servants would come and they would give them some of their food. <laughs> and it was, you know, it was much more of uh, the real equality of an acting company. But so you did have those two, those different two worlds, company yeah, feelings yeah. and everything about them was different. How you shoot them and how you would 
organize them and rehearse them compared, you know, because downstairs, there's everything, a, everything was always moving. Chaos and you, downstairs and, and r roughness. And, and you would move around yeah. with it and things mm. would hand off and everybody was moving in and out of everybody else's shots and the shots would move around all the time. And mm. upstairs, it was much more staid and sedate and gliding, you know? So, so the process of it, of the two felt very different. Plus, Upstairs, everybody, you know, the hair, the makeup, the wardrobe was so extensive right. that setting it up and maintaining it from shot to shot was just a lot of slow, detailed work. Whereas downstairs, it actually wasn't because they they could look sort of rougher. They had a very simple mm. costume. They They were like these two completely different acting companies who were very well coordinated. They were separate, but then when they would come together, it was both strange for them and a real treat because they got to see what it was like on the other side. So that's that's the human play and the human community. And then like the artistic play I'm and discovery and exploration, how much freedom is there for that? Or do you guys just all have to come in kind of with your own? You know, like, yeah, in the moment to moment work, for there's example. A, there's a lot. There's yeah. a lot. I mean, we spent... We spend time doing it, and 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 you know my my background. I think because I think it's one of the reasons I I fit so well with mm. that company is that my background is from the theater. They're all trained in that way, and so my attitude about shooting something is always: look, we don't get a rehearsal process like you do in the theater, where you go and you come together and you put something down and you come back to it a few days later and you do that scene again. So that instead, I like to think of really every angle and every take as just another rehearsal. And in certain angles, you have the opportunity to explore different kinds of things. Each one is useful in a different way. You know, in the in the big wide shots, you really un can explore like, well, where is everybody? And how are they moving through the room? And how is that affecting each other? And who hears who? And, you know, mm -hmm. what does that mean about it all? And then when you do sort of a two shot of two people on a sofa, you can discover a lot more about the physicality between mm -hmm. them and, I see. and all of that. And when you get into the close-ups, there are different things to discover. And so... Which is really how communication, I guess, works in real life, too. Like when we're in a crowd situation, we're yeah. reacting to and unconsciously often the general, the vectors of bodies, the That's right. what we can hear, what we can see, et cetera, yeah. as opposed to moment to moment yeah, facial and, expressions. And, 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 and also yeah. that what happens <laughs> is like the details of your subtext won't show up in that. So in a way, it's not wor even worth focusing on that right then. Right. Whereas the details of your subtext will show up in your close-up or a tight two-shot or something like that. So then it's like, okay, now let's explore that because mm -hmm. that's what we're playing with. That's what we're looking at, you know? Got you, um, got you. And, and even sometimes, you know, I, I'll, I'll put a camera on somebody just because just I, I think like, oh, right, this scene, even at the table or in, a, in the drawing room or something, and I'll think there's the, all the dialogue. And then there's this one character for whom listening to a key things here is actually key to the story. Mm -hmm. And I'll put a camera on them. And then suddenly I'll look at them. I'll be watching it all the way through and I'll think, oh, oh, you know what? You need to hear this line. How are you hearing that? What exactly are you, mm -hmm. are you doing with that? Does that, you know... Because in the big group thing, I'll sort of know, right, of course he's listening. And when he speaks up, I know what informed it. But moment by moment... We can get so much out I can of play the with face, him yeah. and say, right mm -hmm. now, let's just focus on what it's like to hear all these other things. And I think because of that, um, the process always feels like a legitimate discovery process, artistic 
discovery process of a scene so that by the end of shooting it, they feel like, oh, yeah, we learned a lot. And every step of the way, we mm. kept learning new things. We kept finding new things and not just... All right, now we're doing the two shot. Let's <laughs> right, do right, it again. Right, right, right. Next, all right, let's get a second one just in case. You know, that they're yeah. really feeling like like they have new tasks each time. I don't envy you all the logistics, but it sounds like you have a fun job. I have a very fun job. <laughs> I often I often have have the thought on my way in in the morning or when I arrive on one of these things or or I'll see this parade of just amazingly dressed people with these wigs and hats <laughs> kind of walking into my set and I just think, "Oh right, I get to do this for my job, you know." I think this is as good a place as any for us to go to the second part of the show where we will go in unpredictable directions and for the sake of any audience members who haven't heard the show before big think also does uh, video interviews they have picked a couple of short clips for michael and me to watch and uh, we don't know what they are we haven't watched them before we don't know what subjects they're on Uh, they're from past interviews or maybe recent ones and we'll just see what they are and take the conversation from there great This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG 13. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. This, this should be interesting. It's called, a uh, big thing called it micro-visualization, how Pete Holmes creates comedic flow. So this is with the comedian Pete Holmes who was here doing a video. It's unfortunate that the idea of having an intention is, is sort of like so often repeated that it, it's sort of lost meaning. But it's not as, uh, in my experience, it's not as complicated or uh, labored uh, as it sounds, and it's also really, 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 really helpful. Um, for me, if I'm going to do a podcast or really do anything, it makes a huge difference if I just take a moment to like actively imagine. People might say visualize, but it doesn't feel that fancy. It's literally just maybe in the shower, you're going to a podcast, what face do I want them to make? That is such, that just like that specific visual goal of like, how do I want them to feel when we're done? And what my intention when I do any podcast is, I want them uh, to be my friend. I want them to think and be my friend. Not just think that we're friends, that's like phony showbiz nonsense. Some of my greatest friends, people that I consider family, I mean like emergency contacts on my medical forums, were podcast guests. And it happens all the time. And that is, a good intention to have is I want this person to feel safe. I want them to feel seen. Uh, just like Mark Marin at the end of my podcast, I like to say, do you feel satisfied? Do you feel satisfied? Sometimes they say no. 
And they go, you know, when we talked about that, I, I didn't feel like I said it. Do it. Well, go ahead. And, uh, but specifically, what kind of laugh do I want them to laugh? What kind of smile do I want them to smile? That's what visualization is to me. It's not as heavy as like sitting and really, uh, I'm going to play by play. It's 15 seconds, if that. It's not doing it that does it. It's remembering to do it that does it. You know what I'm saying? Like people don't forget people's names. They forgot to remember the name. You know what I mean? So it's actually just this micro adjustment of intention that goes, I took the time. If I'm driving to a podcast, I'll listen to like instrumental music and I'll just thank the person. And you'd be shocked. I'm also listening to myself. What's going on in my world today? How anxious am I today? What are my needs? What are my confessions? What are my joys? And then I'm going in loaded. So if they're not going to, this is another great thing. You go in with enough to say about yourself that if they don't say anything, you go, it's fine. You can sleep in the back. I'll drive us to Disney. It's okay. This is my podcast too. It's fine. I'm glad you're here. You're going to listen. <laughs> you're going to listen to me talk about my mom. And boy, I hope you talk about your mom. But if you just wanted to plug your book, that's fine. It'll get a, it'll get a hefty plug at the beginning. But the episode is going to be Pete heavy. <laughs> and hopefully that's comforting. It shouldn't be threatening. It's like, oh, he's got it. It's good. I'll respond as well. It's, it's sort of like a, you're not going in with scared money. You're like, we'll get this, we'll get this coming or going. I, I have a vision in my head that you score. That's a term we use in comedy writing. If the actor gets a laugh on a line you wrote, you go, oh, he scored with that. I want them to score. I interviewed Stephen Colbert um, for a fest in LA. And I, at one point he was just crushing. And it was because of a certain series of questions and areas that we were going with. Nothing was planned. It was just, we flowed and we got there. And ah, it was 3,000 people were there and he's crushing. And I'm like, it's like watching your, your children take a step or something. Like you, something that you built together paid out for him. Nobody remembers that I did that interview. But everybody that was there was like, remember that thing Stephen said about the tree frogs? And you're like, I did it. And those people are a day off. And then some days where, you know, it's a little bit more like laborious, you, you demonstrate that it's safe. It's, it's going to be a great episode either way. I ask them, what's the hardest time you've laughed? And they, and they don't have an answer. That's fine. I tell them mine and we're both laughing and it's a good episode. And that's, that's a nice thing to say is you're like, you're in an, you're in an, uh, an abundant place. I'm not saying, please fill this with you. You go, this place is already full. Would you like to push some of me out? <laughs> That's so interesting. I have lots of thoughts. About yeah, you know, just the whole idea of intention. I do feel like I've been on lots of different sets, especially when I was moving from the theater into television and people were inviting me and I thought, well, I should, first of all, I was sort of interested in filmmaking, but I thought, well, would I be good at it? Would I enjoy it? Would I have anything to bring to it? Right. You know, that was different. Or that was me. You know, like, did I have a voice that would be that? And I remember going and being on a lot of different sets. And I have been to, and I produced a lot of television. So I work with other directors that I'm around on their sets. And I notice so much how 
separate from talent, although this is an element of, I think, directing talent, is I can just feel sometimes when somebody, what somebody brings onto the set with them, mm. that when they bring a sort of anxious, scared, impatient worry about, are we going to get this? Is it going to work? How are we going to shoot this? What Do we have enough time? Oh, we never made a decision about that. And all of that, I just feel, I just watch everybody else take on that exact energy. Right. And then I watch the actors in some way, they share it, they express it, or they do their work. And then if a question comes up, it doesn't come out in a playful, well, what, how was it? Was that terrible? You know, it, it becomes tense. It becomes defensive and scared. You feel like, um, this is the person running things, and they're not very confident right, <laughs> right now. What's wrong? Something's not going right. Am I not going right? right. Is this, or maybe it's him. Maybe this, maybe this prop person isn't right. Maybe he is doing a bad job. Wait a minute. I don't know. As opposed to the feeling when he talked about intention, I feel like I do that. It's not so much the, well, it's a different thing, but I come on and I'm feeling like, you know what? This has got to be a big, funny, joyous, playful scene. Mm. And that's how I have to come in. And I don't mean acting a part. Right, I mean, right. not, not, not forcing a, a, a sort of cheery energy or whatever. Yeah, like but it. like, I'm excited about this and <laughs> right. we can laugh today. And, and I feel freer and I feel jokier and I feel more mischievous. Has that come, uh, has that become easier with experience? I mean, I can it say has. for myself, whenever I'm doing something for the first time, I'm usually pretty terrified. I've arrived at a, a point of experience and maturity with life in general, where I can probably like take a deep breath and just be calm anyway, but experience seems to help. Yeah, it definitely helps. <laughs> but also, you know, in a funny way, experience helps in knowing that you are having that feeling right. because of that situation. And so automatically, it's a kind of freeing thing of like, of course, I'm nervous today. I've never shot the royal troop marching down a street and doing, you know, I've never done it. I couldn't rehearse it because they're busy and they show up on the day and you get, you right. walk through it and do it. And it's like, of course I'm nervous. But then I don't pretend I'm not nervous. And I don't pretend that I should know more than I know. Right. And I feel like that's part of the thing experience has given me, the sort of the thing to say like, okay, guys, we got a lot to do here. There's a lot we're going to have to figure out in the moment. It's a little unknowable, so stay with me here. Right. If anything really throws you or you're really not certain, absolutely, let me know. Let's talk it through, whatever. And then otherwise, let's just take a shot at this one. Here's my idea. Let's do this and this and this. Let's take a shot at this, and then we'll all talk. Big groups, right. individuals, whatever. And, and again, I think it's that feeling where everyone sort of goes like, Oh, okay. All right. It's going to be a big, crazy day. And they've all been through them. They've been through ones that went well. They've been through ones that went badly. And I think they come into it with a sense of like, oh, right. There will be times I don't know what's going on. Mm -hmm. And I don't have to be angry about that or upset or worry that nobody gives a fuck what I think. To approach the directing that way, you know, there has to be a certain amount of self-forgiveness -for and confidence, or at least 
having reached a point where you're like, okay, with respect to my imposter syndrome, if someone comes <laughs> and fires me as a result of what I can't already have known before, then right, 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 I right, shall right. simply move on with my life and that's all I can do. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and I, it's, like the strangest things have come at me sometimes, like, like on a day where something just seemed so easy, you know, and somebody comes in and just starts screaming at me and is just really upset about something, you know? And I'm actually thinking like, everything's going great. You know, and I don't want to say, what are you upset about? Everything's going great. How dare you be upset? Or, or you're wrong to be upset. Like they're having that experience. And I'll sort of, it, you know, again, I think experience has sort of taught me that just because they're upset doesn't mean this will go badly and it doesn't mean it will go well. Or that it's all your fault. Right. Well, yeah, exactly, right. exactly. And it might be my fault. And then I could say, oh, you're right. That was my fault. What can we do about this? Is that enough right. to say, I'm really sorry. How can we start over and fix it? But, you know, there's so many, that's, I mean, the greatest thing I think about experience is that ability to know what you're going through as you're going through right, it. And, right. you know, I had a, a long time ago when I was in the theater and I, I um, was talking to a friend. I was, I was directing a play in Baltimore and I was talking to a friend on the phone and it was the night of the uh, dress rehearsal and we had done the dress rehearsal. Okay. And he said, how are you? How are you feeling about it? And I was like, well, I'm, I'm not feeling great about it, actually. It was a really rough rehearsal. It was, it was stiff and, da, 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 and, you know, all these different things. And, like, I don't know whether, you know, I thought this woman was doing a great job and suddenly it seemed like she didn't know what she was doing and blah, blah, all this. And he was like, well, for whatever it's worth, um, that's always how you feel after your dress rehearsals. I'm like, well, what do you mean? He's like, that's always how you, whenever we talk after your dress rehearsals, that's always how you feel. Like you're always convinced it's probably not going to work like you thought it would. And he said, and also for the record, sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. So it doesn't seem to have any relation to you having that experience. <laughs> and I swear to God, it was like a break in my life where from that moment on, mm. I remembered at those dress rehearsal nights, I was like, this is how I'm feeling right now. It may or may not have anything to do with or any relation to the outcome. But since that is so unknowable, why go with the feeling? <laughs> you know what I mean? It's so liberating. It yeah, was. It really was. freeing in so many areas of life to realize what things are within your control right. and what things are beyond your control, and, and especially with respect to other people. I think also artists just, you don't get it for free whatever talent is, whatever anybody's talent is. Mm. But especially, I think, in some ways, artistic or creative or, or what you do, like personality things, you get it because of some some scarring, shaping, wounding. And I don't mean literally like pain damage necessarily, but like you want to please people because you grew up a certain way or you had a mother right. who was like this. There's and you, something that's driving you to connect. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And that makes you feel like I have something I want to say and I think I have a way to say it and it, and it matters and it hurts if I don't or it hurts if people misread it or whatever. And so partly it's just owning that and saying, right, I am this damaged, beautiful thing. And sometimes it's just like it shows and everybody sees it and I feel it. And the main thing is to not actually believe 
that now that is reality every time it comes up. Right. Like in a weird way, and you wouldn't know it when you're 20 years old or 18 years old or whatever. You don't understand this, but that is essential for compassion and empathy for others. I mean, yeah. you know, to, to be able to understand, to be able to accept those things about yourself, this is what I know, this is what I don't know, the, the things, you know, I can't control everything is the only way that you can not be an asshole to others. Right, right, right. Well, and also, also like it's the, it's the, old, it's the, old, it's the way too that I think when that person comes up and just starts screaming at me, you know, and sometimes you know, sometimes it's, it really hurts, you know, or sometimes I feel very, uh, you know, like that was so unjustly treated or something, you know, and, and some of the people say to me, like, I can't believe you didn't, you didn't yell at her or get angry right. about that or whatever. And I'm just thinking, how like, could well, you let them talk yeah, to you? Yeah, like exactly. That? And I'm, I was kind of like, I was just standing there. It had nothing to do with me. Sometimes it does have to do with me. And then I hope I can own it when it does, when I'm really in a conflict with somebody. But when those kinds of things just come at me, you know, I do have that. And I think it's because of my own triggering, aware, awareness of my own triggering mm. mechanisms more and more that I can kind of look at it as a phenomenon of that person's makeup and separate it from myself and try to get inside it, help them through whatever this thing is they're going through, take responsibility to the extent that I can, mm -hmm. and then honestly, you know, not make it, not take it on as my problem because other than that we have to get it done. Right. It, it isn't my problem that they're feeling that way. It's just my problem to how do we, regardless of how they're feeling. Move forward. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, probably you can then deal with it much more skillfully and intelligently uh, than you would otherwise. And I, I wonder, uh, that brings up an interesting question. Do you feel that, because I, I always hope the answer to this question is no, but then you hear dispiriting people telling you otherwise. Is there ever, are there times and places, particularly in the business that you're in, for example, where that sort of, the sort of power posturing that others were demanding of you in those moments and saying, why you shouldn't let someone speak to you like that is necessary, is helpful, like is, you know, something you've had to do or, well, or are you always better served, I don't you know, know, by being, being able to listen? Well, you know, it's a funny <laughs> thing because I feel like sometimes one of the things I say sometimes is that I feel like I can tell a lot about a person's relationship with their father uh. by the relationship they have with me on the set or working together, you know, and that sometimes I can see, oh, what they want is for me to just say no, because they're scared. They don't, you know, they're afraid of, you know, they, and they want a boundary. And, and sometimes I do feel like, okay, I'll do that. Or that they, that they literally do not respect the person who will just take something like Interesting. that. And so, you know, I will sense that or I'll feel it. And I will just sort of say, you know what? I'm not going into this. You know, what, do whatever it is I think solves it in a way where I feel like I become the function version of myself, mm -hmm. which is to just, to just like serve this thing, get it done. Um, that I think is very much from like my position in my family, which was always to kind of adjust to the craziness that was going on How in my siblings? house. I had, um, I have two, two sisters and a brother. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Uh, my parents were divorced very young. My mother went through a very, very difficult period. My father wasn't around for big chunks of time. And I feel like a big part of my 
growing up was sort of being sensitive and sort of sniffing the winds before they turned into you know, weather fronts. So I think that is a skill of mine. And sometimes I do sort of realize like, oh, okay, I have to do that. That's what they want right now. Or, you know, sometimes even I feel like my approach to thinking about directing and what I do is fundamentally, I would say it's that I don't have to have the best idea in the room. It's just my job to decide what the best idea in the room is. Mm -hmm. And so in that sense, I'm the director. I just direct it around to where I think it's right and helpful and useful. And, and that can come from a PA and that can come from my, you know, my most trusted department heads or producers. And so, but what I do notice sometimes is that there are people who are more hierarchical in their thinking or their right. expectations that get uncomfortable with that. Because I remember even like sometimes somebody will say like, you know, I come in with a big plan and then somebody throws out an idea. And I was like, that's really good. That's so much more interesting. And I know, I know why I'm doing it because I thought about it as much as I did. And it doesn't, you know what I mean? For whatever reason, right. it's like, that's it. That, you know what? Hold, hold everything. And then there are some people who will then think, oh, this guy doesn't yeah, know what like, he's oh doing because he's he making takes, it up on the spot. Or yeah, whatever. it's like yeah. he's letting the prop guy direct <laughs> right, this right, thing right, right, now, right. you know? And it's like, well, no, but, you know, well, the prop but, guy knows more about props than I do. And when he brings the right one in and it changes my insight into something, why wouldn't I want to be affected by that. You I mean, know? there are so many different styles and approaches, and I'm sure there are lots of directors who are very effective in the other way. That's but, right. Of course, you know, of course. One, one always here, I, I imagine um, Kubrick to have been that way, right, sort right. of like a army general just dictating everything. But, and I, th I think some, and, and I think even within that, there's a hundred styles of that. Right. The friendly, the tough, the, <laughs> right, you know, right, the nasty. Right. And I think there are probably a lot of very wishy-washy people who they might assume I am one of those. But and that's also part of it. It's like getting to the place where I know when I'm walking in with the right attitude about it, when I'm feeling what I know is true about something, what I want out of it. I feel so easy to do that. And if somebody says, are you sure? Isn't, you know, didn't you talk about how you wanted to? It's like, yep, I'm sure. And then that I'll say, and I'll, and I'll even sort of clock myself and say, be tough when you say, no, this is what we're doing now. Mm -hmm. Just so that those people who are afraid that were like, oh, okay, he made a decision. It was a decision. It wasn't a, you know, it wasn't right. a flip-flop. It was a decision, you know? Right. Yeah. There can be certainty within spontaneity, like we yeah. call that jazz. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> um, Michael Engler, this was a really illuminating and fun conversation. Yeah, pleasure. I hope our paths cross again. Yes, I, I do too. Right. And I just want to let the audience know that Downton Abbey is being released, what, like Septem wor September worldwide? 20th in the States and worldwide, pretty much. It, uh, the 13th, which is tomorrow, in the UK. Okay. And I, I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed it. Thanks again for being here. Mike. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. And whether you are a countess or a coal miner or an ordinary 21st century Joe or Jane, that is the end of another episode of Think Again. I would love to hear from you, anything you're thinking, anything that came up in your mind while you were listening to the show. Come to my website, jasongotts.com, and you can send me an email from there. And I'll be back next week with something very different, and I hope you will too.
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.